We continue Zechariah, which you know we had been working through up until a break around Christmas. And the break was a natural break because we come to chapter 9, and chapters 9 through 14 form a unit. So we concluded the night visions of Zechariah. Now remember, this is a 6th century B.C. prophet. The early chapters deal with the command to rebuild the temple and to do so enthusiastically and worshipfully. As we come to the ninth chapter, the temple has been built. And there are other themes that we find in these upcoming chapters that require great scrutiny. One of the problems that I have is to know what to put in and what to leave out because it cannot be done in a single sermon, but I do not want to lose the trees for the forest nor the forest for the trees. So we're going to look at chapter 9 this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. O Lord our God, we know that the prophets of old and the strength provided fearlessly proclaimed and predicted and were guided in all that they said so that by divine inspiration the words that we have are the very words of God. And now, Lord, the minister of the word also should stand and take the word that has been given to us and fearlessly, lovingly proclaim and apply the word, even the difficult portions such as chapters 9 through 14 in Zechariah, to the hearts and lives of the people of God. Give to each of us earnestness in seeking to know Thee in the Word and to understand even the hard parts. For we know that one thing is always clear to us in every passage. There is redemption. Jesus, the King, is revealed the priest of his people, the savior of sinners. And so open hearts of those who may be lost today and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. We earnestly ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. We read together the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamat also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon. Though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. 
I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow shall go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women the word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, God is sovereign over the nations. He has a plan, and he will fulfill that plan. He is in complete control of history. Yes, we confess that. We know that to be true. But when national politics go off the rail or when Christians suffer, as they are even today, under socialist regimes. Do we believe it then? Are we learning that the Christian walks by faith and not by sight, that we completely depend upon the word that he has given us? We rest upon the promise of our God. Prophecy in large measure is given to the church in any time in which it is found in the history of Revelation to encourage the people of God in times of darkness so that they may know and realize and understand that the Lord indeed reigns and that his providence is over all. And God through Zechariah makes this point in chapters 9 through 14 where he's dealing with cosmic issues. He's dealing with these huge issues of time and eternity and of the judgment to come. And he gives two sections 
that are both designated by the burden of the word of the Lord. It may be that your text says the oracles, but if you're using an older ESV before they updated it, it's really a better translation when it reads the burden of the word of the Lord. Because you see, the term burden is associated with judgment in the prophets. And when you see the clouds darken on some Florida summer and the clouds burst with storm, I hope that you will think the burden of the word of the Lord. Because the time will come in which his judgment will break upon the nations. Feinberg rightly has said the last six chapters of this prophecy constitute an incomparable treasury of prophetic truths, and indeed he is right. And here we find truths that are intended to encourage the church not only at this time in history, but to encourage God's people at any time in history. And I really do pray that you will be encouraged. But be aware that these texts are difficult texts. And they are filled with language in the form of literature that is just not the kind of literature and language that we typically would use in our culture today. And one of the reasons that God uses this language is because it is intended to stir the imagination. And that's why I really do believe that some of the images that we will see in these passages coming up in these, in these chapters will be very meaningful to our children because their imaginations are vivid and have not been stilted by life. And so will you listen intently to what is preached from these chapters, because after all, it is the Word of God that is meant to encourage you when you go to work on Monday. The first thing we see as we come to this chapter is destroying Israel's enemies. Destroying Israel's enemies. God is destroying the enemies of his people. And the enemy that he has in mind here is Medo-Persia. And when we read in verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadric and Damascus is its resting place, we begin to see in this chapter a prophecy of the coming of Alexander the Great. So here is a 6th century B.C. prophet that is prophesying the coming of Alexander the Great. And after his victory over Persia in 333 at Isis, Alexander turned south to conquer Damascus, Hamat, Tyre, and the Philistine cities of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod. The very route that Alexander will take is the very route that is pointed out in these verses that we have read together this morning. I think it was Justin Martyr who was the first of our church fathers who argued rightly that predictive prophecy is one of those things that we should take so very seriously as confirmative of God's promises and of his word given to us. I think that's absolutely correct. I went to an, an undergraduate school in which the professors were critics and they did everything they could many of them, to remove the whole idea of predictive prophecy. And I have always concluded when I've read those things or been taught those things that the efforts were rather pitiful. Yes, people of God, hundreds of years before events take place, the prophets are led by God, given by God, His Word that often is predictive. 
And so when we read in verse 1, and Damascus is its resting place, we've already seen that language in chapter 6, verse 8. It means that judgment is on Damascus. And in the second part of this first verse, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, this is God's sovereign oversight. This is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who is the all-seeing God with sovereign oversight over the nations and over his people. For he says to us in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. The same God who oversaw history and events and watched over his people then is the same God who oversees history and events and watches over you now. And then he speaks of the fall of Tyre in verses 3 and 4, and Tyre was full of pride and it must be punished. And if we had time to go to Ezekiel 28, we would see that that Tyre destroyed in the Babylonian period, that Tyre was full of, of pride for its productivity, arrogant in her possessions. In verse 3, it mentions that there is a rampart. You see, this is the new city of Tyre. The prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah have been completely accomplished and fulfilled. And the old Tyre was destroyed as God said it would be. But this is the new Tyre because after the old was overthrown, she built a new city offshore to escape invasion, surrounded by a double wall that was filled with 25 feet of dirt. And she, in her pride, thought that this new city of Tyre would be impregnable until we see what is found here in verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Alexander and his Greek armies will come, and they will demand the surrender of the city. And he built assault works into the sea, and he put the new city of Tyre under a seven-month siege overcame them, killed 10,000 inhabitants, enslaved 30,000 more, and he burned down the new city of Tyre because in their pride, God said in verse 4, he would strike them down. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this applies to individuals. It applies to someone in this room today, undoubtedly. Not yet humbled by grace at the foot of the cross, And it applies to nations. It applies to individuals, to nations, and especially to those who will make themselves the enemies of the people of the living God. Despised, not taken seriously. These are God's people. And those in pride against God's people will know the judgment of God. And so the cities of Philistia are mentioned. And then Alexander went along the shore in verses 5 and 6. And I spent time in Arian's history of the campaigns of Alexander over the last couple of weeks, reading what Alexander actually did to Gaza and to these other cities that are mentioned here. He was incredibly cruel. And there is, however, a note of hope in verse 7. Look at it. 
I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from its teeth. In other words, their sacrificial blood that they would drink. God is going to remove that, he says. And it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan of Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. And that predictive prophecy is fulfilled in Luke chapter 6, verse 17, and thereabout, when the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry ministered in these very areas and people came to faith in Christ. And as T.V. Moore also said, when churches were planted along the coast that Paul visited and from which in the Diocletian persecution there went up a great cloud of witnesses. So there were many, many who came to know the Lord in that period of time when the Lord Jesus and later the apostles preached. Now, the question that you would ask if you were one of the Jews at this point, the temple has just been rebuilt. There it stands. And you hear of the marauding armies of Alexander the Great that are going to come. And you ask the question, is Israel also once again going to fall under the judgment of God? Will this temple be destroyed? And the answer to that question is found in verse 8. The answer is no. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes, that's God's eye, God's eyes over and guarding his people. We are told by an ancient historian that Alexander had a dream and because of that dream he spared Palestine, that portion of Palestine, he spared Jerusalem, and he did not destroy the temple because God was watching over his people. Before we go on, when most of us think of history today, God is never thought of. He is not in the picture. We become thorough secularists in our views of history. But God is over all of history. He is sovereign in history. He is working out his perfect plan in and through history, then and now. And all historical judgments point ahead to that great day of judgment. These judgments, great though they were, are small compared to the judgment that is coming, to which they all point. All historical judgments point ahead. And so I could not help but think, and perhaps you were thinking as well, what of our own beloved country? America, what of America? Shall we not say, prepare to meet thy God, O America? Abortion, approval of homosexuality and other moral insanity that I will not even mention from the pulpit. The meaning of the text that we should take is that you cannot, you cannot sin with impunity. God sees our hearts. He sees the sin of our nation. You cannot sin with impunity. Perhaps you say, well, pastor, America is not going to hear your warning. Well, if God is pleased to raise up an army of faithful ministers and we all offer this warning, they will hear it at least with a year. But will this country repent? Because the same sovereign God that brought judgment upon the Medo-Persian Empire and upon the cities of Philistia is the same God who rules even now. But then suddenly, second thing, 
behold your king. (laughs) There's a stark contrast with verses 1 through 8. As we read in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So on a sudden, there is a prophecy of the Messiah. God's blessings on his people will be infinitely greater than his use of Alexander to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. Behold your king. The conqueror to come is the king of peace who speaks peace to the nations. The king of peace is coming. A greater deliverance is on the horizon. The Messiah will come. And just as every judgment points to the last, so every deliverance also points to the great deliverance that is to come through him who is our king. And that is standard in the prophets. He's the promised king. When in verse 9 we are called to rejoice and shout, it's because the Davidic promise is going to be fulfilled. It is because David's throne, though vacant as Zechariah proclaims that the Messiah is coming, that there is no king sitting upon the throne at present, though Zechariah preaches and the throne is vacant. For God's people, there is the Messiah who will come and he will fulfill the Davidic promise and God's people need not fear his coming as with the coming of Alexander the Great. And there are two imperatives that are here. He commands that we rejoice and he commands that we shout. Where is my heart and yours when we think of our king who is the Messiah? Do we rejoice and do we shout? That is to say, are our hearts filled with rejoicing no matter what we may see around us? And he is said to be the king. Behold your king. And how many messianic prophecies speak of the one who would come who would be king. Just take, for example, that well-known prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Or you might remember that in Luke's gospel, the first chapter, when the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary of the one who would come, he says to her, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Yes, behold your king, born of a virgin who has come and who will come again. And this is no self-serving king like Alexander the Great. The true king comes to save. And so we are given here a description of this king. And as we read through verses 9 and 10, we find that he is just. He is righteous. This kingly righteousness in our society, you know, when someone someone unjust is rewarded often and the just go, go often punished, This moral insanity will not prevail. And there are so many, again, prophecies of the Messiah that speak of him as just and speak of him as righteous. And 
I cannot read them all, though I do have a rather long list here that would be nice to read. But in Jeremiah, just to give you one example, we read in chapter 23 and verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So he is just, not like so many human rulers, but completely just and righteous. Notice it says, having salvation. I hope you're following. Having salvation, which probably means, or possibly means, the one who comes endued with salvation that can save sinners from their sins, save his people from their sins. But there's another possibility. The Hebrew allows for another possibility, and it is Christ's own deliverance, which is also a theme that we find in many messianic passages, such as Psalm 22 and other places. Deliverance as an infant from Herod, preserved in Gethsemane, and delivered from the grave by his resurrection from the dead in order that he might redeem you and me from our sins. And then it speaks of his being lowly, his being humble, not a human king that is haughty and proud. As to outward circumstances, he is lowly. The whole of his life and ministry was one of affliction and one of oppression. And we are told to rejoice and to shout with glad hearts because of this description of the king that would come that would be lowly. Yes, of course, because it is through his humiliation that he redeems and saves sinners. As our catechism summarizes the biblical data, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Yes, I say, rejoice in his lowly condition, for without it we would be lost forever. But it also says, lowly riding upon an ass, which expresses, if nothing else, his poverty, one would think. E.W. Hinstenberg made the observation that from the time of Solomon downwards, we do not meet a single example of a king or, in fact, any distinguished person riding upon an ass. Michael P.V. Barrett has a different take on this. It's very interesting. He sees the significance of his coming riding upon an ass differently. He says for a king to ride on a donkey was not contrary to expectation. The significance rests rather in that the Old Testament associated horses, war machines, with self-reliance and distrust of God. If anything characterized the Messiah's first coming, it was his faithful, unwavering dependence on God. Furthermore, God's initial instructions concerning kings prohibited their multiplying horses. It would be aberrant for the ideal king who was righteous in every other way to associate himself with that which marked kingly disobedience. Even in the detail of the donkey, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. But notice also it speaks, when it gives the description of the king, it speaks of his kingdom as a kingdom of peace. In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace 
to the nations. And how was that peace accomplished? That peace that he speaks to the nations that is proclaimed from our pulpit and proclaimed throughout the world. That peace comes through the blood of his cross. And he will destroy all instruments of war. And in accord with his second coming as well, for the prophets often conflate first and second coming and the issues that are involved. Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so don't you see, lasting peace will not come through humanist efforts. Lasting peace will not come through peace conferences or through the United Nations. Peace will not come through conferences and organizations. Lasting peace will not come through a proclamation of a social gospel. Peace can come to your heart only through the proclamation of the blood of the cross and trusting the one who is the king of peace. And peace will come to this world only when Jesus Christ returns. The results of his first and second coming surely are to be understood in the passage that we are reading here. And the end of verse 10 speaks of universal dominion. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, which you just sang in the hymn right before we read this text which is a reference to the 72nd Psalm, which speaks of the extensiveness of Messiah's kingdom being the the kingdom that would have belonged to Solomon in his kingly reign. But the point is not that it's the size of Solomon's kingdom. The point is that it exceeds Solomon's kingdom and that it entails the entire world. Oh, people of God, do you see? Do you begin to understand the greatness and wonder of your king? Do you see why he says, behold your king? He wants you to think upon this, meditate upon this, dwell upon this, take these things to heart, that you have a king who came in utter humiliation and that through the peace won through the blood on the cross, you can be redeemed. And that, as someone has written, it is not peace at any price, but peace at infinite price, the life of the Messiah. That's the source of peace, and that he will come again. And then we will have universal peace. Behold your king. And we read together that passage from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, when Pastor McNeil read it this morning. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast 
a burden. This 6th century B.C. prophet said, the king will come riding on an ass. And the prediction has been and will be fulfilled. For the whole text taken in mind references the coming of our king at the last day as well. Our king's first and second comings are comprehended in these verses. His coming again hastens. Oh, set your hearts there. Set your hearts upon his return. Third thing, what his coming means for us. And while some of these verses may have reference to the prediction of the Maccabean period, the prophecy telescopes out further for sure. And in verses 13 through 16, there may be some prophetic reference to this Maccabean opposition to Antiochus of Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epiphanes was simply a a type of the Antichrist that is to come. And indeed, the fall of the kingdom of evil is the ultimate points of these verses. So what does this mean to us? Let me give you two things. Two things of many in this passage. One is a stable covenant. A stable covenant undergirds the lives of the people of God. So that no matter what comes in this world, he tells us in verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. What is our hope when we see the world becoming more and more wicked, when we see the evil of this world? It's the blood of the covenant. And undoubtedly, the prophet is thinking back to the 24th chapter of Exodus. But that is fulfilled in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant. And on the basis of his covenant faithfulness that is ratified in the precious, almighty, powerful blood of Jesus Christ, He sends forth prisoners in the pit. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And he designates those whom he delivers his own people as prisoners. Yes, often bound in pits, often bound by governments, but he calls us prisoners of hope. Now, isn't that an arresting phrase? A prisoner? How many prisoners are prisoners of hope? A prisoner of hope. That means a prisoner that has hope. That certainty that what God promises in your life will be fulfilled that you will be a part of a universal reign of peace, that you will not continue to live under the rule of unrighteousness. What sustains God's people is found in verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them. What is the hope of God's people will, on the other hand, be calamity upon those that do not know Christ. Do not procrastinate in trusting in Christ. We do not know when he will return. And it says in verse 12 that he will restore to his own double, double being the portion of the firstborn son, Deuteronomy 21. It's simply a way of saying it will be magnificent what he gives to you, his people. 
So that's the first thing it means for you. The second thing it means to you is we have a warring Christ. Yes, he speaks peace to the nations. He calls the nations to trust in him. But the time is coming in which Christ, the warrior for his people, will bring world powers down. And so he says in verse 13, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. You know, Palmer Robertson reminded me of a, a, an old saying that I know, and probably you know, but I haven't thought of in a long while. Uh, he said, The mill of God grinds slowly, but it grinds exceeding fine. And so we look at this world and we say, what, what is happening? Look at, look at the injustices. Look at the... Well, the mill of grind grows, grown, grinds slowly, but it grinds exceeding fine. He is at work. He is at work in history, and to bring all things to consummation. Christ is judge in history, and he will be judge in the final day. He takes children, use your imaginations, he takes Judah and bends the bow and strings it. He takes Ephraim as his arrow, lets it fly, and it's like lightning as it comes in judgment upon the wicked. That's the position of God's people, bow and arrow, not trampled underfoot ultimately. And so he takes Judah as his bow, Ephraim for his arrow, and he goes forth as a warrior for his people, and God will save his people, and he delivers his own, he says, as a flock. And then notice the last part of verse 16, where he says, well, starting with the first portion, but on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And so the Lord comes. You know those people that you imprisoned because they believed the faith? You know those people you killed because they trusted in me? Uh, you trampled them down. You could see nothing in them. I want you to know those people I redeemed with my precious blood. I spoke peace to their hearts. They're going to live and reign forever. As a matter of fact, they're the jewels in my crown. And so there you are, glittering and shining on that day as jewels in the crown of your warrior king who establishes his throne of peace forever. One of the old writers says the reference is to precious gems set in a crown and flashing from the brow of a conqueror as he stalks over the land. Just look. The people whom I've redeemed and saved. And no wonder then the text calls upon you and me to see, to behold, to dwell upon 
the goodness and beauty of the Lord. In verse 17, for how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. This beautiful king with crown, no longer a crown of thorns, but a crown of victory in which are set His people that shine like precious gems. The beauty of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord to save you and redeem you and not let you and me go to hell, but to give us heaven opened forever and ever. We shall in the day of deliverance when it comes, we shall dwell upon the goodness of God, will we not? We shall when our King comes, who conquers all of his and our enemies, as our catechism rightly says, we will see the beauty of our King, the beauty of the Lord. Well, if we will do so unallowed then, should we not start now? Should we not now dwell upon the beauty of the Lord? Should we not now dwell upon the goodness of our King? Shouldn't that fill our hearts when we listen to the news? Shouldn't that fill our hearts when you go to work on Monday? Should we not be God-centered people, not man-centered? Should we not be God-centered in the experiences of life and of death? Should we not be God-centered now? For we surely will be on that day. And the end of the verse, the last part of verse 17, grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women, is simply using things that were common to them to show that there will be eternal prosperity for the people of God. And so, what happens in this chapter, so much left out. You have no idea how I, how I cut and slash. You think my sermons are long. <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just don't know. No. The prophet telescopes out from his position and his place as the prophet of God to his people, the temple having been rebuilt there in the 6th century, he telescopes out to the coming of Alexander the Great. And then to the coming of the true king of peace. And eventually, all the way out to the final day of judgment that is to come. I find it amazing. I find it wonderful. I think it's glorious. Don't you? And there's so much here for the believer that has been sketched in this sermon this morning. Are you trusting in Christ? Do you trust this King? Because at present, through the preaching of His Word, He speaks, the end of verse 10, peace to the nations. Are you a prisoner of sin? Then by the grace of God, become a prisoner of hope. Undergirded by the shed blood, the promises of the covenant of our King. 
and take refuge in the King who has come and the King who will come, in which only those under the refuge of his shed blood will know peace in that day. People of God, rejoice, lift up your eyes beyond the sordid world system that will perish. Behold your King. Amen.